This episode of the Code Red Podcast is dedicated to all of America's brave men and women who gave the ultimate sacrifice to defend this nation. You will never be forgotten. You're listening to Code Red with Secure America Now, the largest national security grassroots army. I'm Alan Roth, President of Secure America Now. As part of our effort to recognize the heroic contributions of members of our armed forces, Secure America Now is privileged to have with us Joseph Tarkovsky, who has written 40 Thieves on Saipan, an exciting history of the Marine Special Forces unit that helped defeat the Japanese during World War II. Welcome to the Code Red Podcast, Joseph. Well, thank you, Alan, and uh, thank you for having me on your show. Joseph, would you share with us how you came to learn about this heroic group of United States Marines and the role your father played in this drama? It happened, actually, uh, with a eulogy delivered at my father's funeral. You know, prior to um, him passing, it was pretty obvious he was a Marine in the Pacific during World War II, but it was something that he never talked about at all. In fact, he'd get quite upset if my mother ever brought up Guadalcanal or Tarawa or Saipan. Um, but at his funeral, this uh, gentleman got up to speak, and he talked about Dad's tenure as mayor, um, but also that the first time that he met uh, Frank was at... Uh, the University of Wisconsin in Madison around 1955. Uh, Dad was there on the GI Bill at the time, and this other fellow was just a young kid, and he was in Naval ROTC. And he would go to meetings often, and at every meeting there would be this Marine sergeant in his dress blues who never smiled, crew cut, you know, every inch a Marine, and if he had occasion to say his name, he'd bark it out. But one day he saw Frank talking to this stoic sergeant, and um, he was laughing, and they were joking and clowning around together. And the guy thought it was a little curious at first, but didn't think anything of it until he saw it happening a couple more times. And he went up to the sergeant and said, excuse me, but, but how do you know Frank Tahovsky? And uh, the sergeant snapped back, that's Lieutenant Tahovsky to you. And when you speak of him, you speak of him with respect. He was our platoon leader on Saipan when an enemy tank broke through the lines. We had no weapons to fight it with, and the whole platoon was goners. Um, and then suddenly, out of the corner of my eye, the solitary figure runs out into this machine gun fire, um, stands there, fires a bazooka, disables the tank, kills the crew inside, and saved every one of our lives that day. That was the lieutenant. He saved my life. Every day of my life has been a bonus because of that man. So when you speak of him, you speak of him with respect. Quite a tribute to your father. Um, quite a tribute. Your father received this, the Silver Star Award. I believe Admiral Nimitz actually bestowed it upon him. It was it that particular incident that he received that was recognized 
and uh, led to the Silver Star Award? No, he uh, uh, was awarded the Silver Star for actions on Tarawa. Um, it's, and actually, it's one story that Dad, I learned from Dad and something that he wrote down as a speech for some group, I don't know what, but um, there was this horrific pillbox that had all of I Company pinned down and half of his own platoon, and he was going to take some of his men and climb up to the top of it and see what they could do to take it out. And as they're climbing up, the Japanese in the pillbox start throwing grenades down at Dad and his men as they're climbing up. But Dad is so intent on climbing that he doesn't notice the grenades that all of his men do. When he finally gets to the top, he finds out he's up there all alone. <laughs> so, you know, luckily he was able to find the ventilation pipe and throw grenades down and, you know, get the job done himself. And he was always quite uh, modest about it. And when they tried to award him or tell him he was getting the Silver Star, he said, you know, he didn't do anything that any other Marine wouldn't have done. And I think that's the great part of that uh, generation is their humility. Yeah, you know, um, my father-in-law was also involved in World War II in the European theater. And he had the same type of an attitude. They did their duty. They experienced many things that stuck with them for the rest of their lives, but they were not going about boasting about it. They weren't going about even talking about it very much. You entitled your book, 40, 40 Thieves on Saipan. Can you explain where the 40 thieves come from and who these characters are? Sure. Um, the eulogy prompted me to go into my father's footlocker, which was in the garage. And in it, besides, you know, many letters, and the Silver Star, Bronze Star, other things, was his platoon roster from Saipan. So I immediately Googled my dad's last name in Saipan and up popped this website for, you know, Leathernecks that uh, had an article from the December 1944 Leatherneck magazine entitled Tahovsky's Terrors, talking about the Scout Sniper Platoon. And beneath it was a little text from a fellow named Chris Tipton, who said, that, who said uh, in it, this was my father's platoon during World War II. He said everything in the article was correct, except no one ever called them terrors. Among Marines, they were known as the 40 Thieves. Can you now, explain Marine, how the 40 Thieves came about? I mean, who are these guys? Oh, sure. Um, when it came down, well, first of all, to get to the thieving part of it, Marines of World War II were just notorious thieves across the board. They were most... Uh, under-equipped branch of service. When they went into Guadalcanal, they were wearing the same uniforms, issued the same weapons, and also the same rations as were used in World War I. That's what they went in to fight the Imperial Army in, in, in Guadalcanal. Uh, so they learned to pilfer in many different and sly ways, 
And obviously, this platoon excelled at that uh, nefarious craft. Um, when Dad was tagged to lead the platoon, um, he and his platoon sergeant, Bill Knuppel, they'd known each other since being stationed on Iceland together in uh, 1940, uh, they were going through record books, and Dad told Bill was wondering why we weren't interviewing the guys. But Dad first wanted to see who who had served brig time, and Knuppel said, "Why? Why do you want to know that? Because I want to see if these guys have been, you know, uh, thrown in the brig for for brawling, or drunkenness, um, or that they've been in trouble. That the guy who uh, wins the fight is thrown in the brig." The other guy goes to the infirmary. The guy in the brig is the kind of guy I want. That's uh, and that's who, who he ends up recruiting. Many of the characters who are part of the Forty Thieves uh, appear in the book. Uh, I mean, all of them appear, but some of them more so than others. And um, you do a spectacular job and bringing to life these very distinct individuals. And do you have, um, along with your father, do you have a favorite or favorites among these U.S. Marines um, who did something uh, special in your eyes? Well, I personally uh, just, uh, revere and adore the men who are still alive that uh, opened up old wounds and shared stories with me. Um, it turns out that Bill Knuppel was a Marine buddy of this Marine buddy of dad's that we'd visit all the time in Arizona, but nothing was ever spoken of World War II. Bill was always a little bit more um, enthusiastic or would try to bring up the topic. And I didn't think anything of it at the time because he was just a Marine buddy. But whenever Bill would want to talk about Saipan or Carol or anything like that, that dad would always just say, Bill, those days are over. And Bill would automatically acquiesce. It was still, even, even at you know, 80, 90 years old, he was still a lieutenant and he was still a sergeant. Um, so I uh, adore Bill Knuppel. He's the one who gave me so much information um, about the platoon that allowed me to make the other old leathernecks feel comfortable in talking to me about it. I'm supposing, you know, their commanding officer's son didn't hurt either. But when I came armed with information like the pig roast, um, where the guys stole a pig while training on Hawaii uh, from a farmer and had a barbecue on the beach, um, and other, you know, names and episodes that happened that I could start talking about to these guys. They were much more willing to open up and discuss uh, Marvin Strombo, Roscoe Mullins, and Bob Smots. Um, would would try very hard to remember a lot of things, you know, being 80, 90 years old, they remembered as though it happened yesterday, just crystal clear. Uh, specifically days when buddies uh, got killed. Um, but they really, uh, and, and it was very difficult talking to them and having them speak about these uh, 
old wounds because the nightmares that these men suffered through their whole life um, would be triggered by remembering and uh, having these conversations with me. So I was, even though I wanted to learn more, I was somewhat often reticent to ask that extra question, knowing that they were going to go through possibly a night of torment from talking to me. When, when I read your book, 40 Thieves on Saipan, I was not just particularly interested because the story itself of the exploits of this group were terribly exciting um, and, uh, and informative, but also what you've been describing, the history of how you went about uh, writing the book, researching the book, and writing the book. Can you tell us what the reason was? What was the primary reason for forming? Why did the U.S. Marine Corps form the 40 Thieves? And what type of training did they get? What were they expected to do with that training? Uh, there were only two such units, uh, from what I, from my understanding, that were deployed in the Pacific during World War II. Um, the first and more famous was on Tarawa, uh, but the Tarawa was a three-day battle, and the scout snipers on Tarawa were shock forces. Basically, they were the first ones in to do the dirty work and get everything done to help facilitate the landing of the other troops. Um, the scout sniper platoon on Saipan would be a different concept because it's the first time that they would be uh, engaged in a battle with a civilian op uh, population. So there would be more covert work that would need to be done. Uh, so they were trained to live and work behind enemy lines uh, for days at a time, where firing a weapon would be their last resort. So as Bill Knuppel said, they were learned to train people silently uh, in ways that you can't even fathom. And that silent killing was also referred to as black death um, in, in research that I, I, I'm covering things about the platoon. The, um, I'm going I'm to read to you a quote that is in the book, and it's from your father. And, uh, and the quote uh, summarizes uh, a lot of what these guys went through and obviously took with them those who survived uh, after they left the, um, the unit. No one can imagine what it's like to be in direct contact with enemy killing. The loss of an arm or a leg you can learn to live with, but the loss of your soul is something that you may never recover. You won't know until the day of reckoning comes. Uh, I was, again, uh, struck by the depth of the feelings of these guys who were reticent to talk about um, their experiences. But you 
end of the book, or towards the end of the book, you talk about the often difficult times that these young men had when they came home. Now, I'm not I don't. I'm not interested necessarily in in a lot of detail here, but the readjustment into society seemed to be uh, American society seemed to be uh, a, a very difficult thing for some of these guys. Can you talk about the after military experience of these people, the ones that you know about? Sure. Uh, a common refrain of all of the men was that they were afraid to sleep and afraid to dream because of the nightmares that they would suffer. Um, Bob Smots in, in Georgia um, always, you know, would say, you know, the big reason he never talked about the war much was because he felt beyond redemption for the things that he had done. And his wife, uh, Alma, took me aside one day and thank me for, you know, being a friend to Bob and talking to Bob because he, it, it really helped him quite a bit. And she also shared with me that when they were newlyweds, um, she would periodically wake up at night to find Bob choking her because he was having his nightmare uh, where he's chasing the Japanese through the elephant grass on Saipan after his buddy had been killed trying to catch them. And in his dream, he caught the Japanese, and they were engaged in hand-to-hand -hand combat, that it was his wife. You know, how, how many young brides could could wake up to your husband choking them and and understand it um, and, and learn to live with it as she did? She got to learn the signs of, the early warning signs of him having his nightmare, and she could wake him before the nightmare would begin. Um, Many of the thieves, in looking through uh, history logs of all of the names of the men, many of them, you know, went through two or three marriages. Um, Wild Bill Emmerich, one of the thieves uh, who came home, um, had a wife and child before uh, he enlisted, and uh, his demons were so grave that his wife and child left him in the middle of the night, never to be heard from again. Um, Al Yunker Jr., um, Al Yunker Sr. was actually the Surly Marine Sergeant in the story of at the UW-Madison in that eulogy. And his son, Al Jr., mentioned that uh, every night growing up until he left the house, he would wake up to hear his father tearing the bedroom apart um, in his never-ending battle with the Japanese. It is truly amazing and important for Americans to understand that the sacrifices, even of those who survive wars, and this war in particular, um, uh, the sacrifices that they make throughout their lives. I just want to read another short quote from your book by Roscoe Moore. I wouldn't want to live it over again, but I wouldn't trade my life for all the gold in the world. And I pray every day uh, for the people that I kill. I mean, it just, it is, um, 
an insight that I, I've read a lot of military history. I've read a lot of history of uh, battles and uh, you do a phenomenal job in bringing to life these folks both in the field and afterwards. Let me, oh, one of the memorable post-war uh, experience that you relate to us is a return of a flag by Martin Strombo. Can you set it up of what occurred, how he got the flag, what he did with this Japanese flag? It was uh, on a covert mission into Garapan, which is the capital city of Saipan. Um, a squad of 40 thieves were sent in to reconnoiter. And uh, on the way into Garapan, uh, they came across, the unit came across this field of dead Japanese soldiers. And you never know whether they're playing possum or not because the Japanese were very cunning and tenacious. And as for as much as uh, Marines hated the Japanese, they had even more so respect for them. And Marvin would always refer to them as warriors because they were so cunning and tenacious. So amid this field of dead, Marvin thinks he sees uh, a cannon, like uh, a World War I cannon that was somehow similar to something back home in Montana, and he's somehow drawn to this cannon. And uh, when he gets to where the cannon was, it's no longer there. But what he finds is this Japanese soldier on the ground who looks very peaceful and placid as though he's just asleep. And, you know, it's normal for them to search through backpacks to look for diaries or anything that might be information. But um, also for these good luck flags, these Yosagaki Hinamaru, which are very sacred to the Japanese. In fact, they believe the, the soldier's soul is you know, embodied in the flag um, because all of the friends and families from their village, from the villages sign a rising sun flag with well wishes and prayers and give it to him for their soldier to take into battle. And as he's going through the pack, he pulls out these photographs and sees this family. You know, it's a mom, a dad, same amount of, it's the same family as his, basically. Same amount of boys, same amount of girls in a mountainous area. And, you know, it's not uncommon for these guys to have these sort of out-of-body experiences where you hear that, you know, a guy hears a voice that he should duck, and he ducks, and then a bullet flies by where he's been. You know, that's kind of well thought of, um, or I mean, well uh, recounted. So Marvin is looking at this fellow on the ground, and momentarily he sees his face in the dead Japanese soldier. And he's, uh, and he notices the flag sticking out of his, his jacket. And he thought about taking it and then decided to leave it because he knew it was sacred and he started walking away. But then he thought, well, if I take it, you know, I might, there might be a chance where I could give it back to his family someday. And then he made a promise, promise to that dead Japanese captain that he would try to return it to his family someday. 
And uh, through my writing the book, some uh, fellow in Georgia read an article that was written in Madison who knew someone in Montana who contacted Kim Brigham, who writes for the Missoulian. And uh, Kim interviewed Marvin and started to write a series of columns called, uh, where the byline was, Honor Among Thieves. And through those articles, the family in Japan was able to be located. And uh, Mar- because, mainly because Marvin knew where he got the flag. A lot of these flags were traded and bartered and spread around, and no one knows where they came from, but that we know the day and uh, the island that it came from, it was easy to track down the family. And in 2017, uh, 93-year-old Marvin Strombo made the trip to Japan and returned that flag to the to the family. It was uh, uh, quite uh, moving. The, when the brother took the flag, he held it to his face and inhaled deeply and said, you've taken good care of my brother. Great story. Uh, a, a real tribute, um, actually, to the man who did it, um, followed through on his promise. And um, how many of the 40 thieves uh, came back home? How many of them died? Uh Five, let me let me count them up. I think there were five, well, maybe six died uh, on Saipan. Uh, a few more came home uh, injured. Knuppel got sent home right after Tinian because he had his 23rd uh, bout of malaria that he contracted on Guadalcanal. Um, so I think... Uh, Dad experienced maybe, uh, I would say maybe a third of the platoon didn't, didn't you know, either didn't make it home or came home physically wounded. Right. Um, I highly recommend that people purchase the book, 40 Thieves on Saipan. Uh, it is not only an exciting read, but uh, Joseph says um, that half of the proceeds will be going to veterans groups. Can you explain why you have arranged for these contributions to be made to veterans groups? Well, my, my father would always say, and it was always picked up by his men too, uh, across the board, it wasn't just my dad, but the mantra of these men was that we, we don't do enough for our veterans. And uh, I'd be a sad excuse of a son or, or as a friend to these old leathernecks to not honor that sentiment. And my co-author, Cynthia Crock and I uh, decided very early on that we would uh, make sure that uh, about half the royalties would be donated to organizations to help our veterans because it's, this is their story. It's not our story. We're just lucky enough to be the conduits to to tell the story of these amazing men and the the physical and mental sacrifices they they gave for um, their country. Well, I, I commend you and Cynthia um, for 
making that decision. And uh, we uh, thank you for sharing with us uh, your knowledge of what these courageous Americans went through and what they did um, on our behalf. And uh, it's been a great privilege to be able to speak with you and to learn about a group of Americans that I knew nothing about, never knew they even existed. But the book itself um, opened up a door which I think all Americans of all ages should be made aware of. Well, and it's not just uh, specific to these men of World War II. This is something that our young and men and women go through even today. I agree. And um, I have a couple of nephews who did several tours over in Afghanistan, um, as well as one of them in Iraq as well. And it, it's, it's a great honor and, and a privilege um, to know people like that. And you bring to life uh, 40 thieves who did a fantastic job. I thank you very much for taking this time and sharing with us your well, thank experience. Thank you, Alan. Thank you for everything you're doing to help. You're welcome. Take care. All right. Thank you, Alan. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to the Code Red Podcast. Be sure to click subscribe to stay up to date and be the first to hear about our future podcast. You can also find and subscribe to the Code Red Podcast on Podbean, Spotify, Google Play, and YouTube.